0: This is Tony Roth. Welcome to Wilmington Trust Capital Considerations. Today, we have a really important episode. We are joined by a terrific guest, Dr. David Dollar, who's asked me to call him David. And we're going to be talking about China and the relationship between the U.S. and China, which has taken another twist and turn for for the worst, we think, in terms of some recent policy that was announced by the Biden administration. Uh, But there's so much to talk about here. And It's probably, if not certainly, the critical geopolitical relationship to understand how the world is going to evolve over the coming decade or so. And so let me introduce David. He's a senior fellow in the China Center at the Brookings Institution, and he's a leading expert on the Chinese economy and U.S.-China relations. From 2009 to 2013, he was the U.S. Treasury's economy and financial emissary to China based in Beijing. And I think if my timing is right, that would have put you, uh, David, in the Obama administration? Right. First Obama administration. Okay, And he previously spent 20 years with the World Bank as an economist. And during his time there was the country director for China and Mongolia. He's the author of China 2049, a book co-authored with economists from Peking University. And he is also the host of his own Podcast on international trade called Dollar and cents so we we really have a great episode here more than we can talk about in the time we have, but we're going to cover as much as we can and remember that David Light, like Wilmington Trust is nonpartisan and is not advocating for any particular party or policy, but we're really trying to understand how these critical relationships and dynamics might develop because they have direct implications on on the economic balance of the world and by consequence how markets react. David, I think the place to start, because we are very ensconced globally at an economic level in this this huge inflation story that sort of swept over the globe, and in our view, probably the biggest causal factor of the inflation was just a a huge demand explosion in the wake of the pandemic, uh, of built-up demand that came from the withholding of consumption, as well as the all that fuel for the consumption and fiscal stimulus. But for sure, a very material impact also has been on the supply side. And part of that is energy, the byproduct of the war in Ukraine. But probably when you talk about core inflation, the biggest part has been the sort of stasis in China. China has been really singular in the world in its handling of COVID, in its frankly, um, I'm going to call it a failure in terms of its ability to get an effective vaccine out to um, its population. And consequently, it's managing this pandemic still today by trying to shut down and and, and cut off people that are exposed to this. Um, and because that is such a large swath of the population on a rolling basis, it's really impacted the economy and it's, it's really created in the supply-demand Equation: a lot of shortfall on the supply side for all kinds of things. Now we're seeing the behavior maybe shift. We've got this party conference coming up this month, and then President Xi will be over that hump, if you will, and maybe he could be having more relaxed policy. So, David, why don't we start with the whole approach to COVID and where you think it is and where it's going, and how you know as an economist do you think it may impact this ongoing inflation dynamic.
1: Thanks, Tony, for having me on the show. I think you're right that the current inflation really has three sources, and that's why it's so persistent. It started with excess demand in the United States, so the US had its inflation first. uh, But the Ukraine, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, has had a big effect on energy and food. And Europe's inflation started later, but now it's very serious. And then you're absolutely right supply chain bottlenecks have been a third factor. Uh, and definitely some of that is in China related to their zero tolerance of COVID. Uh, their party Congress is scheduled from October 16 to 23. And there had been a lot, certain amount of optimism that they would relax their policies. But I actually don't think that's likely to happen, not, not quickly and in a visible way. Uh, they are concerned about the elderly population that is not fully vaccinated. They face the dilemma that their own vaccines are not very effective, uh, and they're worried about a disastrous situation in which millions of people die. So they've been committed to that zero tolerance. Uh, It's had a big economic effect, and I think they've eased some parts of it. So there's a little bit of adjustment, uh, but it's hard to think of it as as dramatic. I mean, their economy is still doing quite poorly. This is going to be the poorest year in a long, long time. The IMF just marked down their forecast for the year to 3.2%. And most of that is self-inflicted on the Chinese side. So a little bit of optimism that after the party Congress they'll ease up more, but I wouldn't be too optimistic.
0: So David, let's talk about the, the pandemic that as it exists in China. Two questions, have they made any progress in securing or developing on their own better vaccines, or they still have that Sino vaccine that's pretty ineffective, particularly against the new variants. And then two, at some point, you know, the Chinese are very pragmatic. And at some point it would seem you know, they want to be the, the uh, economic hegemony of the world. You would think that they would be very concerned around th- their laggard economy relative to uh, you know, the u.s where they're falling behind in a lot of respects um, and then there's the property market which the weaker the overall economy is the more pernicious this debt problem in the uh, real estate space is going to be as well so even if it's not the next week or month when you look at to the middle of 2023 you still think it's going to be pretty pretty locked down and they're going to have a bad 2023 from an economic standpoint
1: it, obviously, it's a country that lacks transparency. It, yes. it seems that they're not making progress on creating the modern vaccines. Uh, they've been trying to get the Western companies to give them technology for free, uh, the Western pharma companies, and, and they're not willing to for obvious reasons. Uh, it's a valuable product. China's sitting on $3 trillion of reserves. So you know it's a sensible attitude to say that the Chinese government should just pay for this. Uh, but they're very reluctant to buy Western technology. So they're trying hard to create their own uh, rm and vaccines. And I don't think they're making much progress, but I emphasize that lack of transparency. You know, we could wake up and suddenly see an announcement that China has a wonderful new vaccine, uh, but I but I wouldn't expect it. And but then- is we,
0: the, the quantities that they would need are vast.
1: Yeah, phenomenal. I mean, you got 1.4 billion people Uh, 200 million people over the age of 65, I think they're particularly worried about that group. I mean, having, you know, having done a good job with economic development, they now do not want to see a large number of senior people die off. They have a shortage of intensive care units. They've underinvested in hospitals. And, you know, I would say they've overinvested in, you know, roads and railroads, power stations, things like that. But they've underinvested in health care. Uh, and and now they're you know facing a dilemma. So as we get into 2023, I'm sure they'll make some adjustments. And th- you know they understand this tension between the zero COVID policy and economic growth. Uh, and so they will try to find a compromise with some adjustment in the policy. But it's got to take something off of their potential growth. So IMF is forecasting 4.4 for next year. Uh, if anything, that might be slightly optimistic, uh, given given the things we're talking about. I mean, we focused on COVID, which is the immediate issue, but then you raised the, the property sector. That's an important challenge for China as well.
0: It's about a half a trillion dollars, um, by all accounts, of debt that may not be good in terms of the ability of the those obligorists to make good on that debt. Um, that's a big number. I mean, they've got three trillion of reserves, so they can they just absorb that into the sort of the state balance sheet, or how do you see that playing out?
1: Well, they have a lot of assets, so I think there's a classic playbook for dealing with this situation. You know, you want to come in forcefully, and you want to force some of these property developers to go bankrupt. And, you know, and they've done a little bit of that. And they've allowed some property developers to default on bonds. Uh, but they haven't allowed a lot of that. So there is a certain moral hazard in the Chinese system uh, that financial institutions keep lending to the property sector, thinking the government's got to bail this out. Uh, and the government's been allowing some defaults and bankruptcies, but but not enough to really change the attitude. I, I think the fundamental problem is they've overinvested in housing in most cities in the country, uh, and they need to come in seize those assets, auction them off, because if the price is cut in half, what was an empty building may become usable if you cut the price in half. But if you try to get the book value for these things, then you just face this fundamental issue. They've built way too much housing, uh, and it's probably going to take a a number of years, really, to work that off.
0: But notwithstanding that problem, if they are able to grow in a a sort of a normal, unconstrained way, they can get through this fairly easily, given the size of their economy.
1: Yeah, but real estate and the backward linkages to steel, cement, uh, et cetera, all of that's somewhere around 25% of the economy. So it's hard to grow if if you've got 25% of your economy that's really in the doldrums. It's hard to make up for that. That's why under Xi Jinping's 10 years they average about 6% growth, which is pretty good. Uh, they almost certainly cannot do that going forward for a variety of reasons. Uh, they might work this all through in a few years, uh, but averaged over the next five years or so, they're going to be growing a lot more slowly. So, so it's hard to see them just growing out of the problem.
0: Okay, so we have a moment right now, which is, I think, a uh going to look back at history and almost certainly look at this moment as a touchstone moment for President Xi and the future of China, because he's the first leader since Mao to have a third term. And by all accounts, he's going to go beyond that the way it would would appear. And he really has the connotations of strongman leader, which is sort of a inimical to a traditional communist state, one would think, but certainly we've seen it in Russia before. Um, And and talking of Russia, he has this great affinity for Putin. And it's very natural and understandable, frankly, to see why China would position itself with Russia to try to create, at least on a geopolitical level, some balance to the U.S. and not have a single pole world, but maybe a bipolar world in some sense. So that's understandable, um, even though Putin is a pretty um, unsavory character on lots of levels. How do you think that this reelection is going to move Xi in light of how vilified Putin is becoming, um, how sort of outrageous and unacceptable his behavior increasingly is becoming on the world stage? Where do you think he goes from here, given his, you know, the renewal of, of his on political life in, in China uh, and the context in which this is happening?
1: Yeah. So I think it's important to take some of the Chinese rhetoric seriously. you know. And if you pose this issue to Chinese leaders saying, are you looking more for a bipolar world you know, than a unipolar one dominated by America, they will quickly respond that they think the world is multipolar and they favor a world that is multipolar. So I think rhetorically they've lined up with Russia because they don't want to see Russia crushed and kind of a triumphalist U.S. Uh, moment. Right. But they're actually not giving a lot of material support. They're being very careful. Their fir- big firms and banks are being careful to largely honor the Western sanctions. Uh, and then I think in private conversations, they're emphasizing that there's definitely some daylight between them and Putin. They don't like the way the U.S. is carving up the world between democracies and authoritarians in pushing China, Russia, Saudi Arabia, Iran. It's a lot of ironies here that like who's being pushed together in that coalition. I don't see that as a terribly stable coalition. And I think the Chinese ironically play something of a useful role in undermining it.
0: Okay, so understanding nothing else then, David, the timing on the administration's movement to isolate Critical elements of Chinese technology, whether it be actually chip manufacturers or equipment that goes into chip manufacturing, um, the IP for the chips or the IP for the machines that make the chips. Why now, in the Biden administration, you would think that perhaps given the isolation of Russia, maybe this is an opportunity to notwithstanding how deep the problems are with China from a commercial responsibility standpoint, the Chinese appropriating, you know, legally our intellectual capital, other countries' intellectual capital. But maybe this would have been a time not to do that, particularly given the, you know, the path for Taiwan, which would almost seem that it's there for the Chinese taking if they want at some point. It's not as if from a military standpoint, the U.S. can stop the Chinese from blockading Taiwan and ultimately bringing them to their knees—that we're going to, you know, go to war with China over that. So it—it's it, hard to sort of put it all together. Could you help us?
1: Yeah, I think Tony, it's really complicated. I think you're absolutely right. You know, let me point out that this year, 2022, will be a new historic record for trade between the U.S. and China. In both directions, so the U.S. will import more than ever before. The U.S. will export more than ever before. So, as a percentage of our economy, or in absolute n- n- terms? no, no, in absolute terms, actually, as a percentage of our economy, it is, it is diminishing a bit. But my okay. point is, we've got a 25 percent tariff on about half of what we import. We've got these technology restrictions. Seems like there's a trade war going on, and yet there's enormous amount of trade that continues to take place. Now, I support the basic idea of identifying the technologies that have military application uh, and ring fencing them, in a sense. This is something H- Hank Paulsman has talked about to, you know, have a small yard with high fences.: uh, it, sounds, it sounds
0: nice in theory, but
1: I- it, it's hard in practice. <laughs> but what the administration doing is doing has a clear flaw: that they keep adding to the list of technologies and firms uh and this is creating tremendous uncertainty for the whole global business community uh, you you don't know if what's legal today and occurring at a pretty high level of imports and exports you know that could be sanctioned uh tomorrow basically uh so i think that you know we we keep adding things and the chinese always feel compelled to retaliate in some way uh, oftentimes that's just symbolic that's one one reason why the You know, trade continues at a high level, but uh, it it is worrisome that this could, you know, essentially continue to slide in a sense. Uh, And there must be benefits in this trade that's occurring. The companies involved think it's beneficial. So I think it would be uh, it would be unfortunate if the conflict between the two, the let's call it tension between the two reaches a point where we really decouple.
0: Right. Is this. Last set of measures so significant as to bring us clo- materially closer to that point in your mind, or is this just another skirmish?
1: I think it's another skirmish. You know, for one thing, exceptions are granted. In, in a lot of ways, this is just adding bureaucracy to the smooth functioning of international trade. So now you have to get a license for something you didn't have to get a license for before. Uh, it, it is kind of remarkable how much trade continues. So I think a lot of exceptions must be handed out and there must be different workarounds. So for the moment, I don't see that any of these actions is, is make or break for China. Uh, you know, but we don't know. I, I don't know where this ends.
0: And saying what I'm about to say, I'm not trying to pick on the Democrats because this started I think, in full force with the Republicans in the prior administration, but it sort of feels like it's more of a political act, maybe prior to the midterms, than it is an, uh, an act of substance. Uh,
1: yeah, thank you for pointing out at the beginning that Brookings is nonpartisan. I'll just say observing the situation. So the two parties seem to be competing in who can be toughest on China. Uh, and you know that creates a kind of dangerous dynamic.
0: Right. Well, nationalism, tribalism plays well in the polls on both sides of the aisle. So I made some pretty, you know, even inflammatory statements around Taiwan. Right. I think I said it's there for the taking. And I say that in context of, you know, what's happening with what happened with Crimea, what's happening with Ukraine, Um, some weapons provided to provide some support, but no direct intervention on the part of any any friendly countries um, with troops on the ground, aircraft in the air, very, very little. Because there's a, a very understandable apprehension to confront a nuclear power directly um, that has a strongman leader, etc. Very parallel situation to Taiwan um, in in China's you know backyard, to say the least. It'd almost be hard to think that China wouldn't move over at some point in the next you know five years with some kind of blockade on on Taiwan and bring them to their knees. Why wouldn't they do that? What's your take?
1: So I'm. Cautiously optimistic that we won't see conflict in the next five years, and the logic of this is that you know any of the extreme moves you're talking about, like a like a blockade or cutting off data flows or financial flows, you know, are actually invading. It would be highly risky for Xi Jinping. The Taiwan military is serious military with American equipment. It will almost certainly be a bloody mess. I mean, and you know, taking over an island. Uh, it will
0: doesn't sound that hard relative oh, to—
1: Well, I mean, compared to— us. Take us to through a little, it. Okay, I'm not a military expert, but look, at when, when Russia invades Ukraine, they have a long land border. Right, of uh, course. This is going to have to be amphibious so. against a pretty serious military. You don't know if the U.S. will get involved. President Biden has said four times that the U.S. would— would get directly involved, and so you have to factor that in. So I just think there's a, you know, pretty good chance that it all blows up in Xi Jinping's face. Um, you know, global sanctions against him. Uh, you know, worst case, escalating war between China and the U.S. It's it's very risky. The only thing I think that would provoke it in the relative near term would be as if Taiwan declared independence. You know, then I think. The risk for Xi Jinping, you know if he doesn't do anything in the face of Taiwan independence, I think he gets undermined uh, in the communist party and and this actually is one policy that's very popular on mainland China. I mean he would get uh, he would get serious blowback from the public if Taiwan declared independence and the mainland didn't do anything so as long as the Taiwan leaders understand that and stick with the status quo uh, then I don't see Xi Jinping taking this risk in the next five years. Now, the problem with this analysis is if you you know, spin it out to, say, 2050, it's really hard to see what's going to change because the mainland has become extremely unattractive to Taiwan people, especially Taiwan youth. They saw what happened in Hong Kong. Yeah, they're familiar enough to know they don't like the system on the mainland. So you would need serious change in the mainland, to make any kind of federation palatable. Uh, and I don't know if the Chinese Communist Party is patient enough to wait 25 or 30 more years, uh, but you know, I come down in this sort of middle position that the, the scare talk about war in the next couple of years, that, I think that's quite unlikely, but it's also hard to see how this gets resolved a couple of decades down the road.
0: And I know you're not a militarist, Taiwan country of around 25 million versus the you know some 1 1 and a quarter billion or so more more than that Chinese but you know it is interesting that as far as i understand Taiwan does have sort of the the missile capability to reach you know well past beijing etc such that if you really had you know a war between you know Taiwan could do some serious damage to china and their capital and their major cities is that fair
1: yeah that's that's right i mean that's part of the calculation is there would be large numbers of casualties on both sides. And the Chinese, the PRC story is that they're all part of one China. You right. know? So if, if uh, I don't know, I'm scared to think about numbers. I mean, if hundreds of thousands of people are killed, uh, it's hard to see how that's not a political uh, you know, failure.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting to see that with all the weapons that the Ukrainians have, they've been extremely careful to not to very, very actively limit their incursions onto Russian you know territory, traditional Russian territory, <laughs> not, not, of course, the annexed regions. But um, and so that would strongly suggest that um, they're really trying to not provoke a certain kind of reaction. Taiwan similarly has the ability to create some real pain for China, and, and that that's going to act as a deterrent.
1: Yeah, that's definitely one of the deterrents. I mean, and then the West has held together pretty well on the economic sanctions against Russia. Uh, It's still early days, but I I think, you know, within a few years, uh, analysts will look at this and say it was all a huge mistake for Russia and and Putin. And, you know, the Chinese love to study things. So I'm sure they've already got working groups studying, you know, what went wrong with the Russian military, uh, how have the Western sanctions held up? How could you get around them? Uh, It's going to take them a couple years just to draw the lessons from that. And I definitely feel confident they're not going to do anything reckless in the next two years or so. So do you have any optimism that when you think
0: about the trajectory of China vis-a-vis the West, that there could be a reproachment in in the sense of China adopting practices that are more acceptable from a commercial standpoint and the West being more accepting of China as a responsible player on the world stage or do you think that the sort of strong man mentality of Xi is just such that um because you think about the road and bridge that they did you know a dec- half a decade ago and they were really trying to be part of that world order and it feels like they've just gone in the wrong direction and you think that 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 not just vis-a-vis the US but Europe etc and you one would think that the president Xi would be very aware of that and not necessarily happy with where things have gone.
1: Right. I mean, I think objectively, he's done a bad job on a lot of things. So the question is, do other leaders and key people throughout the system understand that? And as they come out of this party Congress, I think a key question is, does C double down on his kind of hard-headed policies toward COVID, uh, toward state enterprises, which he favors, Uh, you know, somewhat aggressive foreign policy, supporting Russia, et cetera, at least rhetorically. You know, does he double down on that? uh, Or does he recognize that, you know, they've really putting the the golden goose at risk, basically, and he needs to put some pragmatists in key positions and let them continue to open up the economy? Uh, I mean, they have done some opening moves over the last few years. They're part of this RCEP agreement, Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership. It's the largest free trade deal in history. Uh, They had negotiated an investment treaty with Europe, but that's on hold. Uh, So it's not impossible that they would come out of this, this Congress with C solidly in place, and that he would surprise us with some pragmatists um, in key government positions. I wouldn't bet on the optimistic scenario. I think I'd probably bet 60-40 on the pessimistic scenario that, that he doubles down. And
0: that, that has a you know, pretty chilling impact in terms of the contribution on an ongoing basis to the kind of inflation that we're experiencing. I mean, we are in a world that, other than Africa and some of the emerging areas, are very much characterized by uh, dropping demographics. To demographics being destiny and, and, and leading to a real disinflationary outcome from a consumption standpoint, less people, um, less people in their prime, and more tech, more productivity from technology, et cetera, et etc. And so it seems very sort of tone deaf to what we're experiencing today to even talk about this. But when you think longer term, it's a real phenomenon, too. How do you think about things, you know, more than just a few years out after this inflation likely abates,
1: yeah, no, I agree, Tony. At first, I think, you know, people talk very casually about value chains leaving China, you know, maybe coming back to the U.S. for reshoring or Mexico for nearshoring. And we're not seeing very much of it. I mean, the U.S. Yeah. is, is going to have a trillion dollar manufacturing trade deficit this year. So there can't be a whole lot of reshoring. And our trade with Mexico is actually very stable. If If there's been any adjustment in our trade pattern, it's that we're importing a lot more from Vietnam. Uh, That has doubled in a few years. Vietnam exported $100 billion to the U.S. last year to be our number six trading partner in terms of imports. So there's some adjustment in value chains. Now, a lot of that that actually are Chinese firms (laughs) shifting some of their final assembly to Vietnam. You know, Vietnam's open to foreign investments, perfectly legal. But you know, let's not get carried away. China is enormous, producing 25 percent of world manufacturing value added. You know, Vietnam is small compared to that. Malaysia, even, you know, also small. Uh, Indonesia can't seem to get its act together. Mexico. uh, So I think we might be in an interesting period where there are opportunities for lots of other emerging markets, but they're not seizing them uh, with the kind of policies that you need to you know, complement free trade, and meanwhile, China is going to be getting more expensive because of demographics, and there's got to be some impact from all these technology and trade sanctions the U.S. is imposing on them. So, so we we may be past the kind of golden age, you know, where we, you know, had this symbiosis between advanced economies and the developing world, but that was primarily China, you know, and if that. China part of that is coming to an end. You know, I would love to see India or someone step up, but I'm I'm not confident that they will.
0: Yeah, and I think if there's one takeaway from the podcast today, I think it's that, David, so much has changed in the world from a distribution of production standpoint and is continuing to change, whereby China was the low-cost manufacturer of the world with unlimited capacity. And now is no longer low cost. It's no longer unlimited. There's significant tension, and that is inherently going to be inflationary going forward for quite some time. It's something that we're going to talk about in our capital market forecast. Um, one of our three themes is really going to be on the trajectory of China and how their demographics, while on the one hand, and I love your, your thoughts on this, on the one hand, their demographics are negative or destructive for their own economy because they're a shrinking population and they're an aging population that also has the effect of being um, limiting for the rest of the world for the reasons that I just described. And they're not making progress, if you will, in terms of you know increasing population rates and reproduction rates by any means. Would you adjust that at all or... How do you feel about
1: that statement? Yeah, no, I think you're exactly right, Tony. Um, You know, they had the one child policy for a long time, and they got rid of it a few years ago. But that's not the only reason why fertility is so low. China's densely populated, housing is expensive, schooling is expensive. A lot of independent young women, you know, don't want to get married, don't want to have children. So their population is going to decline. And I like to focus in on what I call the urban Prime age population, 25 to 55. And even in the recent period, that's been growing rapidly more because of migration uh, than underlying demographics. But now that urban population is going to is peaking and it's going to start coming down. And it's very hard to see what they can do. They could they could do a little bit to encourage more migration, which I think would be smart, socially desirable, uh, but controversial in China. Uh, But it's not going to have a huge effect. Basically, you know, they are going to see population and workforce decline. And it's hard to keep growing dynamically once you're in that situation.
0: And I'm going to close, David, with a statement that you're welcome to comment on or not around the market potential from an investing standpoint that China presents to the world. Um, for foreign investment, and you know, it's one that we've been we've been very excited about for a long time. Obviously, people had made a lot of money given their the growth rate of their markets, and we've really pulled back on it um, of late. We are neutral emerging markets, but a lot of the managers that we work with are underweight China for the reasons that we've talked about, but also for the reason that we haven't talked about, which is the uncertainty of the authoritarian regime in China and what they may do to the markets, how they regulate the markets. So I guess it's a two-part question that you can react to or not, but what's your take on it, number one, on the investment opportunity? And number two, we talked about them having $3 trillion of capital reserved, but is their ability to attract that foreign capital important to them in terms of the growth of their economy, or is that not really a driver for them?
1: I think it's important in terms of bringing in You know, new technology, new management techniques, connection to the world market. Uh, But it's not an important source of capital for China. I think that's misunderstood in a lot of discussion in the U.S. China is not dependent on foreign financing. You know, they have an enormous savings rate. You know, I don't think they're going to react to, you know, what's happening with international financial flows by, by changing very much. In terms of investment opportunities, their capital markets lack transparency, as you know. Uh, yeah, I like to point out our two economies are roughly the same size at this point. We're in the same ballpark, but our capital markets are three times bigger, you know, because we have open, transparent markets. If you meet standards, you issue stocks and bonds. You know, in China, it's very bureaucratic. They use the system to favor state enterprises you probably just saw China has the most number of companies in the Fortune 500, top 500 companies in the world. I think 70% of the Chinese companies were state enterprises. And they may be big, again, included in that list, but they actually have shockingly low return on assets uh, and profit margins. Uh, So, you you know, lots of continuing problems and frictions in their market economy. I think there are niches, uh, particularly for direct investors, uh, there are always going to be some really good niches in China as new products take off. And of course it's an enormous market. Uh, so I don't see the international firms giving up on China, but I definitely see them hedging, you know, out of China for their own supply chains. And they're very worried. You know, they're worried this US China tension is just going to get worse and worse and eventually become a conflict.
0: Yeah, well, it's certainly one, even if it's not a military <laughs> conflict, it's essentially already an economic call, the war, if you will. And uh, it's something that we're going to be very cognizant of as we watch that, that manufacturing relationship and that trade relationship, which is really so big for both countries. So uh, we have to leave it there, David, but this has been fascinating. We'd love to have you back at another time. So thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Yeah, and no, that was great talking to you, Tony. And I, I look forward to further discussions in the future. Yeah.
0: And uh, I want to remind everybody, go to woman2trust.com for all of our latest economic and, and other thought leadership, our views on the markets, et cetera. And we'll be back soon with another podcast.
2: Thank you all so much. This podcast is for information purposes only and is not intended as an offer or solicitation for the sale of any financial product or service or recommendation or determination that any investment strategy is suitable for a specific investor. Investors should seek financial advice regarding the suitability of any investment strategy based on the investor's objectives, financial situation, and particular needs. The information on Wilmington Trust's capital considerations with Tony Roth has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy and completeness are not guaranteed. The opinions, estimates, and projections constitute the judgment of Wilmington Trust as of the date of this podcast and are subject to change without notice. Wilmington Trust is not authorized to and does not provide legal or tax advice. Our advice and recommendations provided to you is illustrative only and subject to the opinions and advice of your own attorney, tax advisor, or other professional advisor. Diversification does not ensure a profit or guarantee against a loss. There is no assurance that any investment strategy will be successful. Past performance cannot guarantee future results. Investing involves a risk and you may incur a profit or a loss. Any reference to company names mentioned in the podcast should not be constructed as investment advice or investment recommendations of those companies. Facts and views presented in this report have not been reviewed by and may not reflect information known to professionals in other business areas of Wilmington Trust or m and Bank and may provide to seek to provide financial services to entities referred to in this report. m Bank and Wilmington Trust have established information barriers between their various business groups. As a result, m Bank and Wilmington Trust do not disclose certain client relationships or compensation received from such entities in their reports. Investment products are not insured by the FDIC or any other governmental agency, are not deposits of, or other obligations of, or guaranteed by Wilmington Trust, m Bank, or any other bank or entity, and are subject to risk, including a possible loss of the principal amount invested. Wilmington Trust is a registered service mark used in connection with various fiduciary and non-fiduciary services offered by certain subsidiaries of m Bank Corporation, including, but not limited to, Manufacturers and Traders Trust Company, m Bank, Wilmington Trust Company, WTC, operating in Delaware only, Wilmington Trust NA, WTNA, Wilmington Trust Investment Advisors Inc, WTIA, Wilmington Funds Management Corporation, WFMC, and Wilmington Trust Investment Management LLC, WTIM. Such services include trustee, custodial agency, investment management and other services. International corporate and institutional services are offered through M&T Bank Corporations international subsidiaries. Loans, credit cards, retail and business deposits and other business and personal banking services and products are offered by MT Bank, member FDIC. 2021, MT Bank Corporation and its subsidiaries, all rights reserved. Private market investments are only available to investors that meet the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission's definitions of qualified purchaser and accredited investor.